Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Organised Crime Terrorism Nexus. Today's panel, we're going to be talking about the organised crime terrorism nexus, and we have three great uh, panelists joining me today. We have Kamal Patterson, Lucas De Silva Almeida, and Kumal um, Giliskir. Um, we're going to stick to a format where each panelist will present their papers, and then we will field questions at the end of the three panels. Um, so I would like to invite Kamal Patterson to begin. Kamal is an attorney who uh, specializes in uh, cultural uh, items and uh, cultural stuff. I'll let you explain more of your work, and, and we're looking forward to hearing about your, your project. Thank you so much. I'll take it away. Thank you so much. I appreciate all of you. Thank you to the organizers, and thank you to my wonderful co-panelists, uh, it's a privilege to be presenting before you all today. Um, yes, I, my name is Kamal Patterson. I am a cultural property attorney and researcher, and I also am an ambassador and cultural property law analyst for ARTIF, a cultural heritage database. I will be presenting to you today um, a paper in progress. This presentation is a part of a paper in progress called how Great Thou Art, Combating the Looting of Sacred Art and Artifacts by Tyrants, Gangsters, Terrorists, and Other Unholy Rogues. So this presentation is a part of a larger paper of progress. It will briefly explore the nexus of terrorism, organized crime, and cultural heritage crime in Ukraine and Levant. Because of conflicts being waged by various state and non-state actors, criminal syndicates have an opportunity to increase the scope of their activities and their power and profit from associations with or sponsorship of terrorists. Evidence shows that cultural property crimes are not incidental to the other crimes committed within the organized crime terrorism paradigm. The US and its regional European and Middle Eastern partners should be aware of the role of organized crime in the looting and redistribution of illicit cultural property internationally. Foreign syndicates have penetrated the domestic criminal ecosystems of various Western countries. These syndicates may have links to legitimate business and industry because of associations cultivated by their homegrown counterparts. The European Commission has examined the phenomenon of organized crime and cultural heritage looting, and they have, uh, you know, uh, recommended uh, prescriptions to deal with it and combat it as they ex uh, explore the various dimensions of organized crime and cultural heritage uh, trafficking. The, Ukraine has long had to respond to the threat of organized crime to its government, economy, and civic fabric. And since the 90s, Ukraine and the US have worked together uh, to combat organized crime within Ukraine's borders, and Ukraine has also worked with its regional neighbors. Now, uh, or transnational criminal organizations do operate in and throughout Ukraine, but only 8% are international. Most Ukrainian organized criminal outfits are local. And whether international or uh, rather transnational or domestic, Ukrainian organized crime is often protected or embedded within the political and business class. And the types of contraband in which they traffic are very diverse from nuclear material, guns, people, and drugs. Organized crime in Ukraine also traffics in religious icons. And Ukraine is unique in that part of its uh, 
Eastern Ukraine and the Crimea are currently illegally occupied by Russia in a conflict that has religious dimensions um, that could be considered to be terrorist. The conflict has claimed over 10,000 lives. There have been attacks on the cultural heritage of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Jewish grave sites have been looted and desecrated. Synagogues have been repeatedly attacked. Uh, the Khanate Palace, a major historical, cultural, and spiritual center for Muslim Crimean Tatars, once considered for UNESCO inclusion uh, as a heritage site, is being destroyed through Russian contractors that seek to plunder its unique architectural elements. A Tatar mufti in Donetsk has called these intolerant attacks on Ukrainian religious, Ukrainian religious heritage and pluralism the work of Ukrainian Orthodox terrorists. The mufti's outcry is not hyperbole. The heinous actions of the Russian paramilitary forces and their collaborators in Ukraine, especially in the Crimea, should be classified as terrorism with little objection. In 2020, the Institute for Economics and Peace found Ukraine remains the country in the region with the highest impact of terrorism, and the largest increase in terrorism from 2002 to 2019. Though attacks have fallen in recent years, 2019, there have been just 22 attacks and four deaths. Uh, those five were attributed to various militias. However, the remainder of perpetrators uh, remains unknown. In Crimea, Russian organized crime figures are the dominant players. Uncovering the links between pre-invasion Russian organized crime and the so-called little green men who invaded Crimea might demonstrate support for the terrorist activities of the invaders by Russian or even Ukrainian organized crime. These groups may see benefit in the paramilitary seizure of Ukrainian sites of, of industry and enterprise. Uh, Russia took over the formerly Ukrainian state-owned Masandra Winery, a renowned and officially recognized site of Ukrainian intangible heritage. And though Masandra was built in the late 19th century, Orthodox monks have been making wine and experimenting with grapes in the region since the 11th century. Officials in Crimea said they were intimidated into giving the Masandra over to a Russian state agency that was connected directly to the office of the Russian president. These officials and private citizens took a risk uh, irresisting because others had been forced off their properties by armed paramilitary forces. But despite their resistance, the winery was sold in 2020. The office of the Russian president had been giving orders for the paramilitaries engaged in terrorism and the Ukrainian agriculture minister issued an admonition for Russian and foreign collectors to realize that they could face international sanctions for illegal economic actions in the annex Crimea if they buy those prize wines. Russian organized crime has also played a role in the looting of Crimea's religious heritage and its support of by Ukrainian organized crime is something to explore because looting is occurring. One of Russia's most celebrated painters, the Crimean-born romantic artist Ivan Ivazovsky, has had several of works in Crimea's museums uh, looted. Ivazovsky was famous for seascapes, which have religious themes, and Russia claims him as one of their greatest painting, painters. The removal of these culturally significant works with or without force of arms may be classified as terrorism because they are intended to destabilize Ukrainian institutions and ultimately identity. Russia plans for the Crimea to be an exhibition center and many of the pieces that will be exhibited at the planned Russian Crimean arts and culture complex are pieces that were formerly in Crimean institutions. The connections between organized crime and the firms and businesses that have contracts to construct this complex should be investigated. Russian state and private arts professionals should also be investigated for their role in curating this complex. They have all likely provided material support for terrorism in the Crimea. 
activities such as reviewing inventory lists from Korean museums and galleries to identify works to remove could qualify as material support. The next step is to look at the flow of religious objects within Ukraine and outside and inquire about the role of organized crime in supporting terrorism there. And also inquiring whether organized crime supports attacks on religious heritage in, in the occupied Crimea, um, especially given that Russian organized crime plays such an important role in the criminal ecosystem there. Russia's bloody support role in another conflict, the ongoing Syrian conflict, provides another avenue for organized crime to play a role in fomenting and profiting from terror. Russia sells arms to the Assad regime. Russian organized crimes, arms trafficking, and other contraband trafficking directly works for the aims of the Shabiha, local Syrian organized crime groups patronized by the current Syrian regime. The, the Shabiha began in the 1980s and 90s as transnational uh, smugglers and black market profiteers that saw an explosion of their numbers um, during various civil conflicts in the region. The Shabiha have ruthlessly looted civilian homes. They even steal marble and tile, floor tiles in civilian houses. According to the Syrian Human Rights Observatory, no one is there to stop the regime gangsters while stolen objects are sold by regime loyalists and Shabiha in the market there. They operate across borders, including in Lebanon. Criminal antiquities, looting and smuggling in Syria generated profits upward of 300, U, 300 million in US dollars. There's evidence that some should be have been trained by Lebanon's Hezbollah. Hezbollah is a designated terrorist group that is also active in organized crime, including transnational crime. Hezbollah participates in the illicit antiquities trade. And according to Baladi and Rahima, Lebanon has become a major market for antiquities traffic from Syria. The Lebanese Hezbollah contributes to the looting and trade of legal antiquities from Syria, especially with the proliferation of party militias in Malola, Palmyra, and other ancient Syrian cities, which are publicly excavating cultural artifacts in Syria. Hezbollah taxes illicit antiquities that are trafficked into Lebanon. Russia has not designated Hezbollah as a terrorist group and justifies its activities in Syria. It's laundered the sanguine reputation of the Shabiha to protect Assad, and they may benefit from the association with these terrorist groups. Uh, Russian military intervention in Syria and its proclamations to protect heritage from ISIL has been looked at askance. Before invading Ukraine, Russia used similar language about protecting heritage from terrorists. Omar al-Baniya is a Syrian journalist and advocate who criticizes Russia's work on heritage in Syria as self-serving and corrupt. He says that Russia seeks to trade artifacts with Syria and that they also seek to control restoration funds provided through large figure contracts from UNESCO or other international organizations concerned with heritage protection. The Assad regime routinely denies excavation permits to multinational teams, but Russian archeologists are granted permits to work in Aleppo and Palmyra. A respected Syrian archeologist said that these Russian-led excavations and restorations are just covers for the search for wealth and treasures. Hezbollah aside, few Syrian organized criminal terrorist groups get to grow big enough or hold territory long enough to cultivate the highly, highly specialized criminal and commercial networks necessary to move material from the source market to the highly profitable destination market for final sale to collectors and museums. They've instead relied upon the service of already established or newly formed criminal trading networks. Russian organized crime and its ties to Russian regular and irregular military infrastructure could have the capacity and channels to move these illicit antiquities, the excavation and sale of which also finances terrorism. 
Next steps in my research will be to uncover the presence of Russian organized crime and criminal channels operating in serious borders areas, evaluate whether any Russian organized criminal outfit assists with Russian military or paramilitary efforts in Syria that commit or encourage terrorism, uh, will assess the scope of Russian heritage protection and conservation of Syrian sites and research a nexus between Russian organized crime, Russian conservation contractors, heritage and arts professionals, and the illicit antiquities trade in Syria. And will assess whether there is a connection between illicit looting of religious icons and books, Syrian regime aligned Shabiha terror gangs, Russian organized crime, and culture heritage trafficking in the Levant. Thank you so very much for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much, Kamal. That was an interesting uh, presentation, um, and we'll get to some questions later. For those of you who have questions, please feel free to put them into the chat, and we will come back to them once we hear from our other speakers, and we'll have a bit of a discussion and, and, and be able to engage with each one of these speakers. Um, our next speaker is Lucas da Silva Amiela. Uh, and uh, Lucas is a doctoral student studying at the University of Granada. He is going to be uh, talking to us about the uh, Comando Vermelho in uh, Brazil. So I'd like to invite Lucas uh, to uh, share what he has learned about this organization. Um, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, thanks attendees and uh, thanks to Network for, it's my first time being a part of this event and that's very, very exciting and it's, very interesting that it happens around the clock. Um, I tend to be a late owl, so that's very, very useful for me. And thanks, Kamal, for the for the great presentation. That's such a fascinating mesh of geopolitics. Um, my my presentation is going to be on um, this group in Brazil called Comando Vermelho, and. I, my analysis, this is my, what I hope to be my PhD thesis or one, one part of it. And what I'm looking at is the similarities between that group and some of the analysis that, ha that happened with um, other terrorist groups like ISIS. So um, criminal networks are basically a representation of what, uh, what crime structures around. And there's a whole discussion around or this crime uh, corporation or a network or what's that in between, how hierarchical it is. But it can be understood as the, the, the social capital that helps make the group run smoothly. Um, those networks are basically very hard to study on their network form, meaning their intrinsic connections, even though it, it's, it somewhat grew in the past few in the past uh, 20 to 10 years, especially the last 10 years, it's not necessarily novel. Um, this is a graph that I found from a geographer in 96 who did a survey on Commando Vermelho. And uh, it, it has a very simple network structure, but it even, it even manages to relate it to the sort of hierarchy that happens with uh, traffic. Um, and one of the characteristics from criminal networks is that they uh, organized social capital in areas that generally are underserved by government. So these groups are, they, they, they fill a, a vacuum on, from the state. It can be a vacuum because they are far in distance terms, like um, two hours, eight hours away by car from the nearest state capital. Or in this case, this is not, a, a, this is not being far in the geographical sense, 
the niche they fill in is far from a sociological and, and a, and a uh, social capital standpoint because the, the places where Comando Vermelho has control are extremely close to Rio, which is one of the most famous cities in Brazil and was a former national capital and that is a state capital. Um, during this, in Rio de Janeiro in the 70s, when they had the brilliant idea, the military dictatorship had the brilliant idea to incarcerate uh, common criminals with Marxist revolutionaries, the cross-pollination meant that the, the ideals from uh, ideological guerrilla and those folks, those, those were generally middle-class students, uh, but they went to Cuba or, or other areas to have actual guerrilla training and that ideology found some people who were actually uh, running, running, running something closer to, to people than, than the Marxist revolutionaries were. And that idea of creating a movement, Comando Vermelho means red command, um, basically created a system where the, the commando, the, the command uh, has a cycle where people might get arrested, as, as the leaders were when they were in jail. But those that go out, they help organize the criminals around this, this shared identity and sort of insurance policy. So everyone pays to for the central command and that money helps to fund the lifestyle, bribe guards, um, help folks who are inside jail, buy protection, and also help families if, let's say, they can't uh, afford and, and give money to, to, to their kids. The commando will to that, prov that provision. Its biggest, its biggest um, product is drug trafficking. It's an international organization. It's probably either the second or the third most powerful criminal organization in Latin America. Uh, sorry, sixth um, from, from the slides, but I, I would say it's probably more. Um, this, is a, this is a map from Rio. Uh, the areas in red are those controlled by Comando Vermelho. The ones in blue are controlled by, uh, by rival groups called militias. The militias are generally um, affiliated with corrupt cops. The yellow ones are a very interesting group called Amigos dos Amigos, which used to be the second place, but pretty much got lost. Um, and the green one is the third command. I'm running an analysis on all of those, but the uh, data collection from Commando Vermelho is the one I tackled first. So these are the first results that I have. Um, they do have a big presence in social media and there, there's always the question, how are you gonna study criminals that um, might try to be hidden? And the fact is they don't try that much. This is the type of video that gets posted all the time on Twitter, identified as red comment. So, this is uh, so guns on cars, that's not normal in Brazil, they're pointing it to the police, um, there's partying, girls, so, um, yeah, uh, I got this one from Twitter like this afternoon, so I pretty fresh, it had around 300 shares. Um, so there is that, we know that Twitter has been used, for example, by ISIS for recruitment. So how does that happen with the, the criminal insurgents in Brazil? And they are part of the crime terror nexus in some way, even though they're not formally recognized as terrorists. On my personal 
<laughs> scholar opinion due to an oversight from from the scholarship that that focused pretty much in the past 20 years on on terrorism as a as a ideological jihadist movement um, okay power displays you don't you don't walk with firearms in brazil um so those those have been posted on twitter and these are ways to say, say we have power we are um first also those are very expensive so that also shows that they have money um there are anti-police messagings so they are uh, they say um for example that they are waiting for the police to show up as i showed in the previous video pointing pointing weapons to police cars um, intimidation against rival factions. They also post that one was a grenade launcher that they that they um, were waving at a party, saying they were gonna um, they were gonna eat their rivals. And the the most fun one are management updates. So the there are tweets like, for example, saying we have new plots of of weed or plot. Um, another one saying. Please don't arrive in our the areas we control, the favelas, with your car driving fast. Please drive slow. Put your light your your internal light. Put your windows down so we can identify you. Even if you're a cop or if you, even if you're a, a driver or an Uber, we just want to make sure everyone is safe. Um, signed, red command, and uh, that that's interesting because they are not only using it for intimidation. They're using it to communicate with their with with those individuals that are uh, part of their communicate with the community. I, I hate the alliteration, but that would be the best definition. Uh, they also do morale boosting. So every now and then, every every other week, they have gunfights with the police. Someone dies, and then they make a compilation video about that person uh, drinking and partying, shooting, and saying, "You were the best. You were my friend." and um, that that has an interesting parallel with ISIS. ISIS did a lot of and still does a lot of glorification videos of fallen fighters, and um, that that part is is it, it helps to create the idea that they are fighting for something bigger, um, and that they won't be forgotten by their friends. So these are the keywords and symbols that I've managed to identify from the from the data collection that meant a few months <laughs> looking at what they were posting, making notes, um, confirming that they were stable, that they were not individuals faking it. Uh, a little bit of a, of a um, handiwork, but it did pay off because those were very, those are very useful for identifying sub-factions. Um, the fact that these are on Twitter profiles on names, locations, and um, status updates makes it, makes it way easier to identify individuals who are affiliated than uh, I would hope so. So um, I've developed a custom sampling algorithm because one of the issues with gathering data from social media is that there is bias. Unless you have access to the full data set, which I didn't because I don't work at Twitter, um, it meant you have to your strategy for data collection is inevitably going to have some bias in that sample, and that really affects the network metrics you get in the end. And if I'm looking to the comparison, I should ideally we should try to minimize that. So the way it works is I 
have, I collect the seeds manually, which are around 50. I look at the profiles they follow. I, I do that for another two layers, and then it becomes too big to actually do, to actually collect everything, at least with my um, technical capacities right now or, or on my laptop and uh, on, on, the, on the data pipeline that I have with Twitter. So the, the third layer means I'm, uh, for collecting the third layer, I check if the user is identified with defection and then I go and collect those friends. Um, and then in order to minimize the bias towards uh, many, towards nodes with high degree that we have in the third layer, I go back and I check content from the faction that has been retweeted. Because that means, uh, since those are two different types of links, retweets and follows, it means I, I have a higher chance of gathering some new seeds. With those cross-verification of seeds, I build a new layer, that's a cross-verification layer, and hopefully that will create a network that's less biased towards the same communities. Um, those are some of the results. Those are the that were connected, that were collected. I was very surprised that around, I, I got around 900 nodes already. Uh, now that, that, has to, that had to be stopped for a few months because I was focusing on another project, but it has been pretty reliable. And uh, my, the problem is my collection of speed was slower exactly because I got so many hits. But uh, I, I would expect at the third phase to have around 300 and I got, triple that. I've manually verified those as real profiles. Um, so that that was, was a, a good surprise, meaning that I'll have more data to work with. And um, the, the initial goal of, at this stage was to say there is enough activity there to, to drive significant metrics, but it means there might be too much, at least for me right now. Um, it's interesting that they do geotagging. So there are posts with precise locations, and that sometimes is used as a taunt to say that, look, I'm here, try to catch me either to the police or the rivals. Um, this, is some, this is from the nodes that have already been collected. The, the friend follower distribution. So that black line you see is what would be someone with 10 friends, 10 people that he follows and 10 people that follow him. So that's a, a perfect reciprocity. Um, we do have a quite a lot of profiles from Red Command that have many followers and that have many friends. It's also very interesting that we have a lot of profiles with many followers um, below 10,000, but below, sorry, below 100,000, but still above 10,000, uh, that's in log scale. And they, they don't follow anyone. So they are just broadcasters. And from my initial, initial observations, those broadcast content that will be reshared then by the sub-factions of the red command, um, which brings to the next uh, slide, which is there was community structure. This was done using the Gervin-Newman algorithm on Gephi, which is a, a network visualization software. And those, the communities were broadly matching different areas in Rio, uh, different favelas, Except from the blue one, the blue one was um, seemed to be more individuals who were affiliated with Red Command but didn't show any specific um, subgroup. It's still very interesting that that even with incomplete and biased data, that structure is already present. 
Um, so um, let me check how much time do I still have? Okay, um, yes. So conclusions collection from these groups in Twitter is possible. The, they do tweet a lot. They do a lot of activity that allows us to, to start drawing more rigorous parallels to what they do and what terrorist groups do. Um, continuing with the collection, the, the right side is the project I've been working on the past foremost, which is another, and which is to, my idea is to bring it together and match Twitter activity with violence activity. And that's a heat map of the extortion data that has been reported by the, by in Rio from uh, across a few years. And it, it has a, a substantial rate of, uh, it, it's very it's very noisy, and not noisy, no, bursty, sorry. Um, and those are Z-scores. So even when we control for, for the population, it's pretty interesting that crime is concentrated in some areas and it varies a lot by, by day. I have the impression that some, especially violence, will be able to be matched to some events on Twitter. Um, still work in progress and I hope to finish that and um, have something more substantial next year. Thank you very much for your attention. I'd welcome any questions. My uh, Twitter is Lucas Finds Links, email Almeida.lu. I'm from Northeastern University. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Lucas. Um, we will just to remind everybody, please push your questions into the QA. We will have plenty of time to have a discussion at the end of our session here. Um, I would like to invite the last speaker. Uh, to talk. Um, this is uh, Kumal Gillisker. He's going to be talking about the role of financial institutions in addressing the challenges on financing, on the financing of organized crime and terrorism. Uh, so as you have questions, please put them in the Q&A. Uh, Kumal, please uh, take it away. Thanks, Odo. Um, appreciate everyone's effort in organize this. Um, as uh, Gundu said, I'll try and speak on a different topic connected here, the role of financial institutions, the challenges that they face in addressing the financing of organized crime and terrorism. Um, one anecdote going back is Ramzi Yusuf. Uh, he's one of the co-conspirators uh, of the 93 world attack on World Trade Center. He in his testimony claimed that if he had more money, he would have been able to purchase more explosives and undertaken a bigger attack. Now, uh, terrorism, we all know, they require money. But uh, in this short span of time, they've been able to build an entire infrastructure where they're easily able to receive money, move money between locations, and utilize these funds to carry out attacks. Um, you would want to understand how this has been possible. So basically, uh, you know, source of funds would be categorized into four buckets. One would be state sponsorship, uh, any kind of illegal activities that the terrorist organizations undertake, uh, popular support that they get from masses through donations, and lastly being illegal activities that they are involved in. It's this illegal activities, uh, you know, which has helped um, take care of this financing uh, infrastructure. Like if we know crime over the years, uh, over the centuries, actually to say has evolved, 
uh, it from being only a local to a national to an international uh, platform, transnational. Um, this is mostly because of evolving technology. Now, this movement of money is actually become a business of its own. Like you have professional money movers or money launderers, as we call it, professional money launderers. They would range from accountants, lawyers, bankers, and having support from definitely the black sheep in politics and regulators and law enforcement. Uh, but they generally consider financial institutions as the first line of defense. Now, if you look at certain statistics published by United Nations, around 1% of the money moved or the black money market, which feeds into you know, terrorism and organized crime is only confiscated each year. The overall size of the black market would be uh, you know, close to 800 billion to you know, almost 3 trillion US dollars. And if we say only 1% of that is getting confiscated by law enforcement and regulatory bodies each year, are we doing enough uh, to address this problem. Now, where do financial institutions, uh, you know, spend their energies and why we feel that, you know, uh, they are not, uh, they, maybe they are failing and uh, they are not in line or actively chasing this money. I'll probably put this into, uh, you know, four buckets. One is the resources. When we compare the type of resources, that a financial institution puts into their compliance, the, their money laundering or their KYC teams, uh, they're generally only analysts. At times, they're only freshers out of school and colleges. They don't have real-time experience on how the money laundering really works. Second would be the training that gets imparted. Um, it again limits to you know, a theoretical exposure as against the practical exposure that law enforcement and regulatory bodies have. Third would be the processes. I think every financial institution uh, always has to choose between compliance and uh, business, and business generally takes precedence. So checks become a factory model and nobody understands the full, uh, you know, the scope of that particular transaction which were the parties involved, where did the money flow from, where did it receive, where did it go to. So there's no one individual who looks at an entire transaction history or a transaction flow. And finally, technology. I think financial institutions today are talking and definitely taking steps in bringing artificial intelligence, money laundering, uh, to address money laundering issues. Uh, but we already have uh, you know, the money launderers, the terrorists, the criminal organizations already claiming to be using cryptocurrency as a source of moving money. So even when we look at implementing technology, um, financial institutions are a step behind than these professional money launderers. Uh, maybe I'll conclude as to what different can we, the financial institutions do, uh, you know, to address these practices. Would it help them to hire uh, more resources from the law enforcement and regulatory bodies as against just hiring uh, you know, novices, or I'll say people who are generalists and not specialists in identifying these kind of money flows. Uh, also, would the training should move from theoretical process oriented to on ground uh, you know, 
attacking hundreds typologies and finding out where exactly the money movement is happening. And finally, how best can we use technology uh, to address the patterns, identify those, you know, uh, what Lucas uh, showed or what Kamal showed they're trying to research. How can we use technology to address those patterns and probably stop the money flow? If you're able to stop the money flow, we would be able to stop uh, the evils of both organized crime and terrorism. So I conclude here and going those back to you. Thank you so much. Uh, I will go ahead and uh, start with some questions. I'd like uh, to invite all of the speakers to turn their cameras on and we'll do a Q&A. For those of you who are watching, please feel free to drop any questions that you have in here and we'll, uh, we'll do our best to answer them. Um, so I would like to start with uh, Kamal. Um, Kamal, how did you get into studying the Ukraine and, and this particular set of uh, cultural theft? You know, it's, it's something that uh, is brand new to me. It's it was certainly not on my radar. Um, and how did, it, how did it come across your desk and what got you interested in studying this? Thank you. Um, that's a really excellent question. I, I'm trying to think of my origin story <laughs> about, you know, how I, I think the invasion of Crimea really affected me when I found out the level of heritage destruction and that the support from so many kind of official outlets in Russia. So there's evidence to show that, you know, the Orthodox Church is giving their literal blessings to the paramilitaries and telling them to go and attack, you know, Ukrainian Greek um, Catholic churches and going to, you know, uh, do, uh, you know, devastating things to, to, to Muslim and Jewish communities. And so I started to really look, well, you know, who is funding this, in, this invasion? Who stands to benefit? And, you know, seeing that there's a, there's a, there's a coterie of organized criminal figures and oligarchs that are invested in this illegal occupation and territorial expansion, along with cultural heritage destruction in order to destabilize Ukrainian identity. Um, I think to see the level of investment of so many you know, Russian organizations in trying to destroy Ukrainian national identity and institutions, um, it was definitely something that I wanted to research more. Um, and you know, I'm still continuing to look and see all these various layers. I find it fascinating how you know folks sort of get involved. You know, my my own work was in the drug trade, and people always ask me how I got interested, and in, and particularly for students out there who are looking at you know finding projects and and trying to make a difference with their research. I think that these stories are really important. I would like to ask that same question to you, Lucas, because. You know, while, while you're from Brazil and, and you would have been aware of all of these organizations, what made you decide that this was a topic that you wanted to, you know, get get your fingers, uh, you know, get your hands into? Um, thanks. So that was, uh, it was sort of by accident. I didn't, wasn't really aware I wanted to study dark networks until someone forgot a paper they were reviewing on the printer which was about dark networks. When I arrived in my institute, I wanted to look at something sort of uh, more towards transitional democracies. And um, as I started reading, I'm like, this is fascinating. And um, 
when I went to look into the examples and when I when I set up a lit, a lit review around it for a class, the examples I found were extremely biased towards uh, jihadist organizations. There was a lot of material from criminology and gangs that I, I got in contact later, but from from standpoint of ideological organizations, the those were pretty biased. So terrorism, and I, but I remember like look as I was reading. That this sort of looks what happens in Rio, and this this too, like, and then when I uh, when I said, okay, I need to find a thesis, and <laughs> I need something that that's new that I can apply my skills, and then at the same time, would be rigorous research, and I it, it sort of came to my to my to my attention that uh, if if I don't if if it's better that someone who knows the language does that. Then some and knows the social context because otherwise it's going to happen. What happened with a lot of network researchers in which people went, got data, plotted pre-charts, and they didn't consider what that structure meant in terms of the social, the underlying social processes, and that that created a lot of uh, misinformation even inside academia that we're still trying to untangle today. So it was sort of a. a, a academically defensive maneuver, like someone is gonna publish about it, it might as well be. And as I as I started looking more into the case, I realized how unique it is within the, the scope of dark networks and, and, and criminal insurgency and terrorist groups. I started in 2006, and I started looking on the idea around 2016, right before I actually had to present anything. And it evolved into a bigger problem uh, the situation with Mexico is, is sort of an example where groups that have very similar characteristics can w go way above in the scale of uh, danger level. Um, the ones in Brazil are pretty bad, but uh, the ones in Mexico are, are literally the state in some areas and larger areas, I'd say. So um, it, it sort of co-evolved. Going on to Kamal, I, one of the things that really struck me about your talk was the capacity issues that we have in terms of being able to analyze money laundering. And over the course of your career, what are the biggest changes in your view in terms of that capacity issue? Has it been a situation where there was a time where um, anti-money launderer uh, money laundering organizations, monitors, you felt like had a better handle than what they do today and there just hasn't, hasn't been able to catch up? Or have we always been behind the, uh, you know, behind in terms of being able to effectively monitor these types of transactions? Wonder, I'll answer this from two perspectives. Um, I'm sure the law enforcement, the regulatory bodies would be doing a very fantastic job. I think we are safe because they are there. But when it comes to the financial institutions force, end of day, we are no more than, um, I'll say physical bodies behind machines who's crunching a lot of data and trying to see if there's a pattern. And I'll always say we always behind because we only do a post transaction analysis. Uh, Again, we look at only things in isolation, like say if I'm working with Bank A in UK, I'm only looking at D 
the spread of transaction that they do. And at some stage, the transaction will go outside of that bank to another territory, another jurisdiction, another financial institution. So they can see only that, you know, what's visible on their screens. And whereas, you know, when you deal with these professional folks, they are executing this entire journey of a transaction. So I'd say unless and until, uh, you know, we reach a stage where uh, financial institutions are talking real time with each other, my sense is we may always be a little behind. But again, this is more, uh, I'm speaking for the operation side. Um, definitely the enforcement bodies would have a much wider view of, you know, looking at things. Certainly that cooperation element is a, is, a, is a really big one, right? And we see that not all countries cooperate effectively, yes. you know, in terms of sharing information and, and um, understanding how um, certain transactions might jump across various borders. Uh, I guess just sticking with this theme, if I can go to uh, Kamal, I'm very curious to understand the journeys that these items that are looted in the Ukraine take. So you're talking about a variety of different markets. And I guess for me, what I would like to know a little bit more about is how deep do these markets go? In other words, when we start understanding that we have these items being taken, who are they being sold to and who are they being sold onto uh, across the world? And that's a that's a really excellent question. And there are lots of legitimate buyers on the market. I actually uh, met a researcher at a previous conference recently, and he said that the scope of the, the different types of buyers and where they end up is, is really surprising. So there's a flow from the, you know, from Ukraine into Central and Eastern Europe. And there are lots of legitimate buyers um, and lots of legitimate channels of distribution through which these objects move. And I think that the kind of fog of war, the conflict, you know, it's not a, it's not a conflict in the Levant, um, you know, that the Russians are also, you know, fomenting. So it kind of flies under the radar when we talk about objects coming from, from Eastern Europe. And so I think that, you know, people don't think that there is a, an organized crime or a terrorism nexus with regard to objects coming from, you know, Eastern Europe. So I think that there's less scrutiny. Um, and I think that there needs to be, you know, more attention paid. And I think part of that is recognizing the role that, uh, you know, criminal syndicates um, and organizations, paramilitaries that foment terrorism or commit acts of terror, you know, play. And, and if not extracting these um, pieces, uh, being a part of the supply chain, as it were, the illicit chain um, into legitimate markets in Europe. Just to follow up that, that question with you, what kind of dollar amounts are we looking at? You know, like when, like, I have no idea how much, how much folks can expect to get. So when they're selling these items, what kind of, what kind of income are they generating? Um, in terms of a, of a dollar amount, I have to do some some further research about that. But you know, from the from from people that I've spoken with and resources, it's actually quite lucrative, and it's so lucrative, in fact, that you know you have professional fences that operate kind of like, like a loot to order, 
uh, for certain very vulnerable synagogues and other churches in Eastern Europe, criminals go and are, you know, there's a Mr. Big type figure and they often will loot to order for, for buyers. And so with that type of sophistication, you know, the, the prospects of what they can get are fairly, um, fairly lucrative. So Lucas, one of the things that you talked about a bit was this question of control. And this is something that interests me quite a lot. So I'm going to, I'm going to push you a little bit on this because a lot of times when, when we hear narratives of organized uh, criminal entrepreneurs and, we, and, and gangs and, and other types of organizations, people like to talk about control. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of imagery that happens in terms of saying, you know, you, you, you showed that, uh, that tweet, I guess, which said, don't come into the neighborhood uh, unless you go very slowly and, and so on. That, that to me is, okay, that's, that's, that's quite a narrative of control. But you know, in a lot of areas, I feel like those narratives are overblown in, in the sense that um, law enforcement talks about these organizations having their hooks and their tentacles everywhere. But the, the reality is, is that because they're inherently businesses, they don't actually engage in all of this violence. I know that in Latin America, there are different parameters than what we see in, 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 say, in the Western world. Certainly there's a big difference between what we see in, on the US side of the border uh, and the Mexican side of the border, just to draw a, a very clear line there. But I just wanted to ask you, when, you, when you're talking about control of you know, CV or any other one of these uh, criminal organizations, prison gangs in, in Brazil, what are the, what are you actually talking about? You know, to what extent do you actually, you know, think that they control life in the areas they operate in? That's, uh, that's an interesting question. And that the, uh, the big part here is the boundary we set. Because the, the coming, for example, the map I showed with the areas they control, that's just taking, that's just considering, that's being very conservative. It's not area of influence. It's an area where um, wearing, let's say if you wear a red shirt to a, a favela that's that's controlled by the third command, you might, you at least will get beaten up. And that, that's assuming you are a tourist that knows absolutely nothing about the area with a funny accent, no weapons. Like if you're just a random passerby wearing red, you at least will get beat up. Um, and that's, that's being very conservative. Now, uh, at certain, when, when we're talking about control against other entities, there is a certain level where uh, some areas are disputed and two groups will claim control of that area and they might have micro control of like certain streets where they have points to selling drugs and one group will have control of certain, a certain another group of streets. And there's this that zone in the middle where no group actually goes because they are afraid of each other. So you, you might have, act, have areas that are paradoxically quite close to criminal control, but they don't have criminal activity because they try to avoid, they try to create that buffer zone unless they are actively aiming for war. And there are also events where that happens. Um, there's one tweet that I got where this guy was like in a car with his guns saying, here, I'm in the area of uh, this subfaction of the CV. Why don't you come and get me? I know you are stalking my, my Twitter. Uh, so the uh, on, on 
on certain thresholds, they do have a lot of control and they have a lot of control over um, smaller aspects of life. So who gets electricity, who gets gas, who gets, um, in one favela, it, it, it came news that the uh, one, one boss actually got a, a healthcare worker to do, uh, he, he was leaving, apparently his shift was up, but someone had broken a leg and he threatened him and said, you're going to take care of this guy because he's from the neighborhood. Um, you're not going to let one of my, one of my, one of, one of my friends to, to um, get that. So the, the area of influence they have, and, and that depends, there are also different bosses and different management styles. So within certain areas, there's a lot of control, especially in Rio and especially in areas in the border. Um, when we're talking about other places like let's say center west, there are cities with criminal groups that are affiliated with the PCC. Um, where you, uh, certain niches, and then that's mostly by economic niche and not by geographical area, uh, will be controlled by these groups. And so let's say um, gas distribution, like uh, gasoline distribution in a few areas in Goiás, that, that's known to be controlled by PCC uh, groups. So, um, it can be overblown when, when you consider it as a block, but definitely in, in within its own boundaries. And once you get the proper framing, they, they do have control. Sorry, did that, My, um, did that help or was, uh, did I miss something? No, it, it's, it's, you know, control is such a multifaceted uh, question because when we start looking at criminal associations, you know, and you think about the roles of, of government um, and, you have some criminal associations that take over some of the roles of government, like providing electricity, like providing opportunities, providing security. And all of those things, I think, factor into to control, not just uh, simply intimidating people. When we look at historical examples, uh, for instance, uh, the, the city where uh, Chapo Guzman was arrested in, you know, he actually provided quite a lot of resources to local people, and that created security for him because he knew that when push came to shove, he, he wasn't going to be able to go on a knock, knockout, dragout fight, knockdown, dragout fight with, uh, with law enforcement. Um, and Pablo Escobar was in a, in a similar uh, situation. Again, you know, when you have military capacities, uh, there, there is a mismatch. There's a mismatch in terms of uh, weaponry. There's a mismatch in terms of uh, skill level, in terms of being able to fight. Um, and there's a lot of security that happens, you know, not always by intimidating people. I think those are interesting elements to, to think about when we think of control, certainly in the Latin American context, right? Um, but uh, let me, go ahead. One, one, one just point. I think one of the best tests to apply regarding how bad it is, is military presence. When it gets bad enough that it's not about police, it's not about getting the elite force of the police, not the federal police, you have to get the army to intervene, then we're in Max Weber range of like who controls the monopoly of force in a certain area, um, and that definitely happens in Rio in certain in certain places. Uh, there were there were there are areas that they will need to have the army come in. There also is an element of caring, right? I, I suppose because you would have to have a government that cares about the population to be able to put the military there. 
right? So the military is not always a good indication of that because certainly if you don't care about the well-being of the individuals in a district, right? You don't care about securing their, their, um, their physical safety, right? Like if their lives actually don't mean anything to you, then you don't put the military there, right? Like yeah. you just let, you let, you let the, uh, the, the criminal entrepreneurs uh, run the show because they're not important. Or you don't have the capacity to follow up. You might be able to take territory, but you don't have the sustained resources to hold it and to provide the services that they now provide, which has been the problem with the, the, pro the massive projects that they did in Rio for the Olympics. They went and built stuff and it was left to rot because the, they just wanted to get those six months of safety so tourists, so the Olympics would run safe. And after that was done, then the money had to go somewhere else. Um, well, let me uh, let me ask you a question. One of the things that I came across in in my research was the use of money uh, uh, of halal systems, right? So, like black uh, black market peso exchange halal systems, in order to engage in money uh, laundering that was not using technical systems, but was still capable of moving really large amounts of money. And I think that in terms of the space that I've looked at with money laundering, one of my ongoing questions are. What are the what are the risks? Because you mentioned cryptocurrencies. What are the risks that cryptocurrencies are actually going to be able to launder the volumes of money that really good professional money launderers can launder just with ordinary transactions today? Like, is there really the incentive to move millions, tens of millions of dollars into cryptocurrency when people have demonstrated they can actually launder money quite in a straightforward way using things like trade-based money laundering, et cetera. Well, the Ryle still say you can't beat the old traditional way because till the time money is the physical paper currency on hand, or you're going with the currency of the country, uh, things like Havala or you know, the peso movements, they, they'll always be around. Because end of day, uh, the people on ground, let's say, uh, you know, you really need to pay somebody to buy something, um, maybe to create your a bomb. He will need hard cash to pay for it. He's not going to be able to pay for it with crypto as of today. So I don't see the traditional ways going away anytime sooner. It's, I think crypto right now, more, my personal opinion is more a myth or a bubble where people are using it more as an investment and as a set as against a currency because uh, crypto is not today being used by say you and me to buy something over the counter so unless and until we reach a stage where crypto is also means of a transaction i don't see havala moving off and again i think crypto how many of us even really understand what it is apart from you know uh, just the flashy headlines that it would be used for money laundering. You know, it's it's fascinating. I've been doing some work with um, with trying to understand regulation uh, and and what the process looks like to cash out uh, cryptocurrency. And you know, yes. it, it seems yeah. that the uh, the the consensus that I have come to to read is that it, it, it's quite possible to eliminate crypto money laundering 
at the cash out point, as long as you have strict regulations on cashing out. But that will start to change exactly like you said, if people can easily uh, spend cryptocurrency to buy everyday products, then that changes the dynamic completely. So, you know, it's, um, it is something, and as we start to see other types of products, um, you know, the NFTs, uh, various other types of moving value across uh, the internet, I think that'll always be sort of a small corner of the internet that people can move money. Um, but I'm, I still remain unconvinced that it'll become a big thing, I guess, I guess yeah. similar to, to you. What, uh, like when I look at India today, um, you know, a lot of crypto exchanges which are popping up and they're giving you the flexibility to trade in them. And yes, at some point in time, cash out your profits, but they limit it to, you know, withdrawing, um, say, equal to a thousand US dollars. So they, they, they're asking you to cash out at a point, only 75,000 Indian rupees. That's a thousand dollars. Now, unless and until you can cash out in big denominations, yes, the movement will happen because movement nobody is tracking, but how do I cash out? How do I use? And I think that's something we all really need to know a little more about, uh, like still trying to understand that world a little better. But I, I'm not able, to, as you said, I just don't know how do I cash it out, big time money. Yeah. Like even uh, sometimes when I'm checking one, like they put on, you know, 25,000% in one year. <clears throat> so if I invested a thousand dollars, it would have God knows become how many million, but will I be able to cash it out and use that money? No, it depends on paper. Well, I'll take this opportunity to thank uh, all three of the presenters for coming and sharing their expertise and their knowledge. I think you know, one of the things that I really enjoy about this conference is that we learn about uh, a wide array of things uh, that are part of the world of illicit enterprise and organized crime. And we're able to engage with topics and content that otherwise we probably wouldn't have time or uh, the space in our brains to actually process. And, you know, today it was really exciting. You know, certainly I had never uh, thought about cultural uh, theft of the Ukraine and everything that's happening there, but it's certainly something which is here and now. And, I, and that was a very exciting thing to learn. Um, you know, I, I have a little bit of knowledge in terms of money laundering and uh, the, the criminal organizations that are operating in Brazil, which I suspect is why I was asked to moderate this particular panel. But even still, it's great to hear about uh, different things that we're seeing in terms of the evolution of um, money laundering uh, strategies, capacities, and so on, and um, particularly looking at uh, illicit associations in Latin America and, and you know, looking at really neat methodologies to be able to tell stories. So I would like to thank um, all, all of you for uh, sharing, you know, for particularly for those of you in the United States who got or who are staying up. Uh, you know, well past what my normal bedtime would be. Um, thank you so much for coming today and for uh, sharing what you have learned. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. 
The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.